0: So tonight I'd like to talk about presence and happiness and the obstacles to happiness. I think most of you know that feeling of being totally connected, really there in your experience, totally present. Many people find this kind of feeling of connection and presence in extreme sports, mountain climbing, music, losing yourself in art, perhaps, or in nature. When I was young, the way I would get this feeling of really being connected and alive was by traveling a lot. I traveled to many countries and lived in many countries, and it was that newness that excited me and that made me feel alive and interested and new and connected. Sometimes we call these peak experiences. But what if we were to have this same sense of presence in our ordinary experience? What if we could have it with the breath or sitting right here in this hall? The amazing thing about this practice is that it develops this sense of presence even in our ordinary life. It's actually what we're practicing here. So we practice coming to the present moment and connecting with our life and with our life experience. We cultivate that sense of aliveness, of wakefulness. The journey is often called one of awakening. What we find as we meditate is that life does become more vibrant. The senses become more open. We experience life more fully. I still remember the leaves in the forest, on the floor of the forest, during my first three-month course, when I first experienced this sense of aliveness through meditation. And I'd be walking through the woods, and the leaves, yellow, gold, orange, green would be on the floor of the forest. And it was just like, wow, they were so bright. It was just an ordinary experience, just some leaves. And yet I felt so connected and present and alive. When I first started to meditate, too, I quit traveling. I found that I could discover this source of vibrancy in life right in my own backyard that I didn't need to go looking somewhere else for it. So in meditation, we develop this sense of presence, of wakefulness, of aliveness. But it doesn't always feel that way, does it? We don't always feel connected here in the hall. We often don't even feel awake here in the hall. That's because there's a whole other part of practice. This other part of practice is seeing what is blocking our sense of connection, what is getting in the way of our feeling present. We begin to see what perturbs our sense of spaciousness and ease in the world. So we sit here and we do the sitting meditation or we do the walking meditation. And part of the practice is that we see these obstacles. Sometimes we have the sense that our practice is bad or wrong when that is happening. But that's not true. That's just part of the practice. One way that we learn presence and wakefulness is by seeing what gets in the way of presence and wakefulness. from a book by Christina Feldman and Jack Cornfield, The present moment is the most profound and challenging teacher we will ever meet in our lives. It is a compassionate teacher. It extends to us no judgment, no censure, no measure of success or failure. The present moment is a mirror in its reflection we learn to see. Learning to look into this mirror without fooling ourselves is the source of all wisdom. In this mirror we see what contributes to the confusion and problems in our life and what contributes to the harmony and understanding. We see the relationship between pain and its causes and we see the bond between love and its source. We see what it is that connects us and what it is that alienates us. So at times here we may feel present, connected um, with our experience, and at other times we may be seeing what alienates us, what keeps us from being present. Traditionally, it's talked about that there are five um, obstacles to practice, and I want to talk a little bit about those tonight. These are places where it's easy to get stuck. Technically, they're called hindrances, the five hindrances. You may have experienced these guys at some point. Restlessness, sleepiness, doubt, wanting, and not wanting. So what are we going to do when these uh, visitors show up? And uh, generally, they disturb our sense of presence. So what can we do about it? The general thing we do with all five of them is we pay attention. Just like we pay attention to the breath, we can pay attention to restlessness. Just like we're with hearing, we can be with sleepiness. So we bring our attention to these experiences when they arise and we see if we cannot get lost in them. And this is a way that we can return to our sense of spaciousness even when these visitors appear. I talked a little bit, or we have talked a little bit in instructions about what to do with restlessness. You know that feeling like body wants to move, feels jumpy in the mind. You might even feel like screaming and running out of the hall. Um, You're certainly thinking, oh, are they going to ring the bell? Can't stand this, that kind of feeling. Most people experience it at some point. Um, The first thing that's good when you notice that happening is you can just say, oh, restlessness, that's what's happening, that's my experience in the moment. Can that be okay? Kind of radical, no, we usually think when we're restless, we want to get rid of it, but can it be okay? Can that be your life at that moment? But I also recommended that there are things you can do to work with it. So we accept it, but we also work with it. Um, One thing you can do is open your attention to hearing. Sometimes that kind of spacious feeling will uh, give the mind enough room to run around in and it won't be uh, quite so upset. Another strategy that you can try is counting breaths. That's not um, generally how we do Vipassana meditation, but at times when you're very restless, you might want to count, oh, one in, one out, two in, two out. It can calm the mind. If you're really going crazy, you can just open your eyes and look around. Any way to survive sometimes is how it feels like when you really feel restless. Sleepiness. That one's big in the afternoon. Well, it's big in the morning, it's big in the evening. (laughs) Sleepiness can happen anytime. It used to be my favorite hindrance when I first started meditating. Um, I was sleepy a lot especially after 6 p.m. It was hopeless after 6 p.m. Sometimes I was so sleepy that I would almost fall asleep during walking meditation. Not just sleeping, and not just sitting meditation. Well, at that point it was sleeping meditation, but walking meditation. Can we be okay with that? The first thing we can notice is, oh, sleepiness. Sleepiness is what's happening. So being okay with it, but also... Doing what we can to bring some energy. So opening the eyes. Not looking around, but opening the eyes, keeping them downcast in front of us. Sometimes that will kind of wake up the body. Sitting straight helps bring energy. Often if you're using some kind of back support, it's easier to get sleepy. So if you have a sitting that you know you're likely to be sleepy, perhaps not leaning back against anything, but making your body support itself, and that helps you stay awake. Sometimes it's interesting when we're sleepy to actually see if we can watch the breath more closely. Because sometimes we go, oh, another breath in, another breath out, you know. But what's actually happening, you know? You can bring your attention really close. (coughs) Oh, okay, what does it feel like at the beginning of the in-breath, middle of the in-breath, end of the in-breath, beginning of the out-breath, middle of the out-breath, end of the out-breath? Now trying to tune your uh, attention stronger. Then there's the hindrance of doubt. And that's the one that has thoughts such as, I can't do this. This is impossible. Everybody else is doing it, but I can't. I'm a failure. These people don't know what they're talking about. This is crazy. This doesn't, this will never work. You know, all those kind of thoughts that we have, which we all have at some times, especially when we're feeling discouraged, you know, that, that um, really can take away our energy. They can really kind of suck us down, our energy down. So it's really important when we have thoughts like that to notice, oh, that's doubt. And the amazing thing is we don't have to believe it. And those thoughts, I can't do this, we don't have to believe them. Sometimes we forget that. It's easy to forget that when doubt's operating. What I find useful sometimes with doubt is to make a date with doubt. When doubt comes up a lot, you say, okay, right now we're not going to engage in these kind of thoughts, but Tuesday evening when I'm home, I can think about all of them. (laughs) You know, because some of the questions are good, you know. I mean, obviously you have to decide if this practice works for you. It's not going to work for all of you. Some of you are going to like it, and some of you are going to say, well, that was an interesting experience, but it's not my life. So, you know, they're good questions. But if we do them while we're meditating, we just get totally discouraged and derailed. So make a date with doubt. Okay, Tuesday night, I get to think about all this. It can work. You know, doubt will settle down sometimes if you, if you promise to give it some attention later. The two hindrances that I wanted to talk about most tonight are wanting and not wanting. I think one of the great misfortunes of being a human being is how we suffer at the mercy of our minds. Chaotic thoughts, turbulent uh, thoughts, obsessive desires, incessant thinking, paralyzing fears. These minds can really cause us a lot of trouble. I assume most of you have noticed that by now. But one of the great blessings of being a human being is that there is a way to work with all of that. There's a way to work with uh, the difficulty in our mind in order to find some freedom, some sense of happiness and spaciousness and ease in life. when we talk about wanting and not wanting, we really get into the arena of thoughts and how to deal with our thoughts. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about working with thoughts because it's really um, a big part of practice for most people, is how to work with the thinking mind. The interesting thing about thoughts is that we, wind up creating these worlds in our mind, um, these whole universes, these whole stories, and then we live in them, and then we believe they're real. There's this story of a story of a man who lived in a cave and he painted this tiger on the wall of his cave and he painted it in great detail and very well, vivid colors, fine lines, and he painted it so well that he thought it was real and he got scared of it. That's what we do with our minds over and over and over again. We, we create these stories in huge detail, and then we believe that they're true. It's kind of like we live in a virtual reality world or a dream world. There's a lot of different metaphors that are used for these kind of crazy minds that we have. Sometimes it's um, the image of a waterfall, you know, that tumbling, tumbling, tumbling feeling. Or sometimes the image of a monkey swinging from tree to tree, sometimes we call it monkey mind, you know, that mind that just merrily swings along. Sometimes it feels like a circus or a zoo in there. I like how this teacher puts it, um, uh, Bhante Gunaratana, a monk from Asia who lives in Washington, D.C. area. He says, somewhere in this process, you will come face to face with a sudden and shocking realization that you are completely crazy. Your mind is a shrieking, gibbering, madhouse on wheels barreling, pell-mell down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. You are not crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way, you just never noticed. You're also no crazier than anyone else around you. The real difference is that you have confronted the situation and they have not. So they still feel relatively comfortable. That does not mean that they're better off. Ignorance may be bliss, but it does not lead to liberation. So don't let this realization unsettle you. It's a milestone, actually, a sign of real progress. The very fact that you have looked at this problem straight in the eye means that you're on your way up and out of it. So sometimes it feels just a little bit crazy in there. But that's okay. That happens to everybody. And knowing that and facing it and figuring out how to work with it that means we're on our way out of it. Sometimes when we come up with this problem of, of problem or difficulty with a lot of thought, we think, well, the solution is to try to get rid of thought, to make thinking go away. Have any of you tried to do that? Does it work? No. <laughs> Most of us try it at some point. It doesn't work. That's the problem. We can't control our minds. The only time we really have any control is the moment that we realize we're lost in thought, realize we're thinking. Then we can decide what we're going to do next. Indulge the thought or let it go and go back to the breath. As we do this more, we develop the ability not to get entangled in our thoughts. We develop the ability to come out of these knots that we make in our thoughts. But we can't tell our thought minds don't think because it won't work. When I first started meditating that, that was the strategy I was working on. I thought you know okay I should be able to make my mind not think and then every time you know I thought which was a lot I thought I was a bad meditator. I say oh I just I'm not any good at this you know. And so I went into one of my interviews with my teacher, Sharon, and I was kind of complaining, griping, about how much I was thinking and what a bad meditator I was. And she just kind of looked at me, and she's like, you can't control whether your mind goes off into thought. The only point that you have any kind of control, so to speak, is when you notice you're um, lost in thought, you can go back to the breath. And I was like, oh, well, I can do that, you know that's doable. It wasn't doable to get my mind not to think. But it was, when I noticed I was thinking I was willing to go back to the breath, I could do that. So trying to get rid of thought isn't going to work. The truth of the matter is that thought is not the problem. You know, thought is useful. It gets things done in the world, right? The problem is Um, how we get stuck in thoughts, how we paint those tigers on the wall of the cave and believe that they're real. Thought's such a funny thing because when we're not aware of thought, when we don't really notice it, and we get lost in it, it's so powerful. It creates our whole world. And yet what happens when we become aware of thought? You know, what happens at that moment we go, oh, I'm thinking, how much power does thought have at those moments? It's very interesting to look. You can look in your own meditation. What happens at that moment that you notice your thinking? What happens to the thought? Try it tonight, see. We find then that when we bring our attention to thought, our mindfulness to thought, it loses its control over us. We have um, a choice about how we relate to it. What usually happens, however, is this phenomena, that, uh, the tiger on the cave phenomena, and um, there's a word in Pali for it that I really like a lot. The word is papancha, papancha, that's the tendency of the mind to proliferate. You know, to start with one thought and kind of go on and on. You know, I wonder what's for lunch today. Uh, yesterday we had pizza. That pizza was really delicious. I hope we have something like that today. Wouldn't it be great to go home and get a pizza? I like Domino's. Domino's pizza with cheese. That's really great. And um, maybe if they don't have pizza, they'll have cheese sandwiches. That would be all right. You know, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's papancha. That's what our minds do, you know. It's like it takes a thought and just goes, blah, blah, blah. That's how we get lost. But when we bring mindfulness, oh, I'm thinking, then we can choose how we relate to thought, and it's much more free. One of my favorite quotes about thinking is by Mark Twain. He said, I've experienced many disasters in my life, most of which never happened. And um, it's kind of what we do, you know. We experience these disasters in our minds, but they don't happen. You know, that's what happens when our minds get um, out of control and when, they, um, and when we don't have any mindfulness. But mindfulness can help break these patterns. Awareness can help us um, not get so lost in, in the stories of our mind. And then we suffer less. We can remember, oh, it's just a story. I don't have to believe it. We shouldn't underestimate the power of that. It's big. This moment of mindfulness, this moment of seeing that it's just thinking is a moment of freedom. It's a moment when some spaciousness can come into our minds. And as we do this more, as we develop this muscle of mindfulness, um, it gets stronger. We get less stuck in our thoughts, less stuck in our emotions, less stuck in in all those tiger stories. And we start to have more space, more space to see things as they are, and more space to um, question whether our thoughts actually are helpful, are useful, are true. Uh, just more flexibility with working with our minds. I mentioned briefly at the um, three o'clock sitting today that one way we can increase this mindfulness, you know, being aware of thought, is that sometimes we'll find that we have the same thought that comes back over and over again. We all have our kind of favorite themes. Very common one is planning, remembering, judging, rehearsing conversations. So uh, if you find that you have a thought that comes back a lot, you can actually give it a specific label and that helps increase your mindfulness. So oh, that's planning, that's planning. Sometimes some people find that just messes them up, they're thinking too much and then again, you shouldn't do it. Sometimes um, if you have like certain stories that come back a lot, You know, maybe the story of what you're going to do when you leave here and get out of here, or uh, the story of your summer vacation, or you can actually number them. You know, you can play with this. It's like, oh, that's tape number one. People usually have, like, their top five, you know, like the top five hits. And uh, so you can say, oh, that's number one again. You know, it's just anything that kind of um, helps us to kind of loosen it up in there a little bit and and learn how to... um, not get so wrapped up in the stories of our mind, but actually be able to work with them. So it's a practice. From the same monk that I read the other quote, he said, every musician plays scales. When you begin to study the piano, that's the first thing you learn and you never stop playing scales. The finest concert pianists in the world still play scales. It's a basic skill that can't be allowed to get rusty. Every baseball player practices batting. It's the first thing you learn in the Little League and you never stop practicing. Every World Series game begins with batting practice. Basic skills must always remain sharp. Sitting meditation is the arena in which the meditator practices his own fundamental or her own fundamental skills. The game the meditator is playing is the experience of his or her own life. And the instrument upon which he or she plays is his or her own sense doors, sense experience. Even the most seasoned meditator continues to practice seating meditation because it tunes and sharpens the basic mental skills we need for this game of life. So we're all still here. It's good to practice. That's how we uh, learn these skills that help us to work with our minds. Learning these skills uh, of working with our minds And we're going to be continuing with instruction, adding more instruction, how to work with thoughts and emotions, other body experience. It gives us a chance to um, develop a clarity that helps increase our happiness in this world. Related to these last two hindrances that I mentioned, wanting and not wanting, the stories Lots of these stories in our mind are about what we want and we don't want. You should check that out sometime. You know, if you listen to the thoughts, go on and on and on and on. Usually the underlying theme is I want this and I don't want that. That's a very uh, strongly conditioned pattern in our minds. And the Buddha taught us that that that's actually the problem um, that causes us to suffer. That's what causes us to be disconnected from how life is now. That's what blocks that sense of spaciousness and presence that we were talking about at the beginning. It's this mind that's constantly trying to figure out how to get what it wants and not get what it doesn't want. We can practice this very directly sitting here. For example, at the 3 o'clock sitting this afternoon, how about that noise, the tractor outside? You know... Probably for most of us, there were periods where we didn't want it to be here. And we felt like it disturbed our, um, our meditation. So that's where we look. We look to see, is there another way to relate to this noise or to relate to the sound that we can still be present? We can still be here with our lives, not fighting against it. So we practice that. We use the noise as a way to learn about our blocks to spaciousness and happiness. Or how about that time you are sitting thinking about pizza? You know, the mind that wants, wants something. It's a great time to practice. You know, what happens when we get sucked into that wanting? What happens when we become aware of it? How can we return to some sense of spaciousness and ease and happiness? Now this is what we're practicing here. The Buddha taught that there's a happiness that's greater than this happiness of getting what we want and not getting what we don't want, which is basically how we we usually think about happiness, and that this greater happiness is learning to rest in life as it is, learning to accept life with all of its ups and downs, its pleasant and its unpleasantness. It's really happiness that's closer to peace of mind. We usually try to find happiness by figuring out some kind of strategy that's going to bring us pleasant experiences, like I said, and avoid unpleasant experiences. I remember a period during this first long retreat again. I spent about a month trying to figure out what was going to make me happy. I was not much older than most of you, actually. I was 23. And um, my mind just kept trying to figure out, what's going to make me happy? What's going to make me happy? And we came up with all kinds of strategies. You know, One of them was I was going to get this little hut in the mountains and kind of live like a hermit. Then I'd be really happy. And then I thought, oh, no, then I'm going to get lonely. So then I thought, well, maybe I'll live in a community with a lot of people, and we'll all practice together. And and then I thought, oh, but then they're going to drive me crazy. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, I'll find a partner and have kids, and, and uh, that, you know, will be what satisfies me. And I thought, oh, but kids scream, and they cry, and they, you know. So it's like my mind just kept going over and over. What's going to make me happy? And actually, it was, um, it was a hard time in practice, you know, because I kept coming up with Zip. You know, every every plan that I came up with, it was like it wasn't going to do it, you know. I was still going to have to experience things I didn't want to experience, and, and nothing stays the same. So it, there was no assurances. So finally, after about a month of this, I went into um, an interview with Sharon again. I was This was when I was interviewing with her. And I said to her, I said, Sharon, it doesn't look like there's anything out there that's going to make me permanently happy. And she said, yep. And I said, so I guess the task is to learn how to be happy with things exactly as they are. She said, yep. (laughs) That was the interview. (laughs) And um, it was amazing. My practice changed at that point. It got um, happy because I was looking for happiness in a place that I could find it. And that place that I can find it is in learning to accept life as it is. This is the kind of happiness that the Buddha is pointing towards. It's a very um, portable happiness, it can go anywhere. It can um, be with life in in any way that it presents itself. We can be happy when the tractor's making noise out there. We can be happy when it rains. We can be happy when we don't get what we want. We can be happy when we get what we want, and it goes away. It's really about learning to be happy with life as it is. One of my most recent favorite quotes is by um, Charlotte Joko Beck, she's a Zen teacher, and um, really one of my favorite teachers. She says, what is created, what grows, is the amount of life I can hold without it upsetting me. At first this space is quite restricted, then it grows a bit bigger, and then it's bigger still. It need never cease to grow. And the enlightened state is that enormous and compassionate space. But as long as we live, we find there is a limit to our container size, and it is at this point we must practice. How do we know when that cutoff point is? We are at that point when we feel any degree of upset or anger. It's no mystery at all. And the strength of our practice is how big that container gets. So what happens is as we practice, the size of the container, the size of life that we can hold, or the amount of life that we can hold without it upsetting us, grows. Gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You could say that more of life feels okay or acceptable, or um, we can be peaceful with more of life's experience. The strength of our practice is how big that container gets. So we sit here and we practice making that container bigger. And whether you know it or not, that's what you're practicing here. You're practicing this acceptance. When you come into the hall and you don't feel like it, you're practicing being with unpleasant experience, which is part of life. When you come in here and give up um, all of your usual pleasures, your usual ways of finding um, happiness, like uh, music or pizza or whatever it is, um, again, you're practicing finding a kind of happiness that's not dependent on things being a certain way. It's a very beautiful kind of happiness, a peaceful kind of happiness. So I'd just like to end with a little quote from the Dhammapada, which is a book of uh, sayings of the Buddha. Wakefulness is the way to life. The fool sleeps as if he were already dead, but the master is awake and she lives forever. He watches. She is clear. How happy he is, for he sees that wakefulness is life. How happy she is, following the path of the awakened. With great perseverance, He and she meditate, seeking freedom and happiness. Let's just sit for a few moments. great perseverance we all meditate seeking freedom and happiness